Hello and welcome to Dialogue, the Diapoint podcast. I'm your host, Pam Durant. Today, I have a very special guest on the podcast. It is Ginger Vieira. She has been with us before in a previous season where we were talking about her book called Diabetes Burnout. Ginger has lived with type 1 diabetes and celiac disease since 1999, and she's had fibromyalgia since 2014. She's the author of several books, including Pregnancy with Type 1 Diabetes, Dealing with Diabetes Burnout, which we talked about, Emotional Eating with Diabetes, When I Go Low, and Ain't Gonna Hide My T1D. Those last two are children's books. After 15 years of creating content for many websites, including Diabetes Mind, Beyond Type 1, Healthline, Diabetes Strong, and more, Ginger has joined T1D Exchange as the Associate Director of Communications. Her background includes a Bachelor of Science degree in professional writing and certifications in coaching, personal training, and also Ashtanga Yoga. She is so knowledgeable. She knows so much about the latest diabetes research, medications, what's up and coming, and so many other things. And I'm so happy that she agreed to join me today to talk about her latest book, Exercising with Type 1 Diabetes. Thank you, Ginger, and welcome to the show. So, Ginger, thank you so much for coming back to the podcast. I'm super happy to have you here, and it's always an honor when someone agrees to let me interview them twice. That makes me so happy. Um, So, welcome back. Thank you. And the reason that we have you here is because since we last talked, you and you had mentioned this at the end of the last podcast, you told us to look out for it and it came out, you have published another book. And I have it here on my Kindle because I couldn't get the actual copy of it um, in time. I love like the, the books of it all. But you have written a amazing guide called very simple, straight up exercise with type one diabetes. Yeah. So I like to tell it like it is. That's, that's what the book's about. <laughs> and it really does. It, it's so, um, I mean, I've, I've seen some other books, instructional books, and I've, you know, looked at them a few years ago and they were quite heavy and academic. And even though I like to think, you know, I can grasp it, I worked in healthcare and all this other stuff and trying to manage it in a child and figure out what's happening when they're doing sports or activities. But it's, it's a very different story when you're actually having to manage it. And it's overwhelming because there's so much going on. I think it's so challenging. It can be such a burden and so many extra things you have to think of. So really congratulations on breaking it down into something that's understandable and easy to follow. And also the way that you've sectioned it, the chapters and everything, it's, it's really, really so good. Thank you. I have been writing about exercise with type one diabetes in articles for a long time and teaching people about it for a long time. And so I really wrote this because I was like, you know what, I think I have all the nuggets uh, and nuts and bolts that I know will apply to most people. And that what most people need for the average workout. I'm not teaching you how to run a marathon in this. Obviously, all of it can apply to parts of training for something more extensive like that. But this is really for the everyday exerciser. And it doesn't matter what type of workout it is. It teaches you the science of what's going on in your body and what your body needs between 
insulin on board, the timing of your workout, the type of your workout, the time of day, if you just drank coffee, you know, like every variable that is really those everyday things that we're all juggling. Because exercising with type one is so complicated. And when you explain it to non-diabetics, it blows their mind, you know, and we're so used to juggling with all of that complicated chaos that we forget like, wow, it is amazing that we manage this every day, let alone while exercising, right? It really is. And even though, yeah, I'm a caretaker, but when I was reading your book, I got tired, like it it made me mentally tired because of all the things that you have to think about. And just sometimes to go for a walk. Yeah. Just to go for a walk. Some days just finding the motivation. If you don't have diabetes, finding the motivation to go exercise is challenging enough. And then if you want to do something a bit strenuous or you're pushing yourself, that's hard. And then yeah. if you have to think, oh, what will this do to my blood sugar? What did I eat before? What am I eating yeah. after? Am I going to feel terrible halfway through just a dog walk because my blood sugar is plummeting? And I, I've gotten so many messages over the years, you know, private messages or friends with type one reaching out and just saying, I'm so scared to exercise because it's so exhausting when my blood sugar crashes. And those are the people that I really want to give them like the information because anybody can learn this, right? And it's really just information and then learning how to apply it to your day. And that is what I try to do with this book is help you not be scared because you understand what's going to happen based on the variables and then how to prepare and better control what's going to happen. Amazing. So, you know, yeah, I... so right this very minute, I'm baking. Is it you're baking? Okay, crisp. we'll pause. Yep. And, you know, we can include this in the podcast. I'm baking a blueberry crisp for my swim, my kid's swim instructor. And no, I believe in eating dessert. And that's also why it's important to learn how to exercise as a person with type one. Because if I, if I didn't exercise every day, I'd have a lot more trouble managing my weight and my blood sugars around my daily dose of dessert. <laughs> it's exciting. I think. So then probably the question that would come up from listeners, would you give us that recipe later? Oh, I mean, it's just blueberry crisp from the internet. There's nothing. The only special thing about it is that the blueberries are freshly picked from an organic farm in Vermont. So that's that. Okay. Yeah. That's a, yeah. That is probably the secret ingredient yeah. that, Pretty amazing. that makes it special. Oh, yum. Okay. So. <laughs> I actually have eaten blueberry. Do you ever eat blueberries at breakfast? And what does that do to your blood sugars? Do you ever? I need a lot of insulin for blueberries. Yeah. It also depends on, there's actually like 20 different breeds of blueberries oh, and wow. some are sweeter than others. And when I go blueberry picking, I pick the sweetest, biggest ones because why not? And uh, I mean, you definitely compared to the ones you could get at Costco that don't taste nearly as sweet, you know, like. It's just like bananas too. Depending on when you eat that banana, totally changes how much sugar is in the freaking banana. It's just not simple, <laughs> right? No, and it's not. Another crazy it, thing we deal with with type one. That's true. That's true. I didn't know that there were that many types of blueberries because yeah. we get a few different ones here. And I noticed because they're bringing food from different countries in Dubai, I noticed um, blueberries that come from Africa tend to be really good and sweet. 
Oh. And I think a lot of fruits so that we get here, sometimes they may have to pick them earlier so that they're ripe when they get here. They don't go bad mm-hmm. in transit or whatever they do. But yeah, that, that was fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. And, and for I, those of you listening, she's checking. She's standing her arm. Right before this, <laughs> I ate a black plum. And I think I'm eventually going to need a small dose of inhaled insulin for it. But I'm waiting just mm. in case. I had it already insulin on board for discover the carbs in the plum. This is a game. It's and that's a good segue into actually how you started the book. And I'm glad that you started it the way you did because I, I when I read things about diabetes, I try to think if my son were reading this book, you know, and the the first topic is mindset in the first chapter. And I love that you started with that. Because even if you don't have diabetes and you're exercising, mindset is so important. But for if you do have diabetes, I can't imagine how much more that plays an even bigger role than if you're not facing a chronic condition. And I mean, the biggest message really is you, you can get pissed off and frustrated and give up if you'd like, but then you don't get to learn how to exercise safely and successfully with type one. And I could have done that a long time ago. I did very little help from any medical professionals uh, when I first set out in my twenties as a personal trainer and yoga instructor and competing in powerlifting. And I absolutely could have just gotten pissed off and given up. But instead, I really encourage you to stop and look at and write down the variables that are going on and look at it as an experiment. And the experiment can't be frustrating. The results are just information. And it tells you that either you had too much insulin on board or not enough, or the timing was off, or you needed your insulin right after you finished working out or halfway during, right? Or your um, adjustment in your temp basal before your jog, you did a temp basal 30 minutes before, but you actually still had too much insulin on board by the time you were jogging. You probably needed a temp basal at least 60 minutes before or a more dramatic temp basal, right? Like take a deep breath and look at the variables and see what you can change because that really, that's all it is. And the, and I don't mean to simplify it because obviously very complicated, but it, it is just a science experiment and you get to tweak all the variables. That's so true. And yeah, if it doesn't go perfectly or the way you want, if I'm learning something new, kind of part of, like you said, it's a game and you have to realize that that's not a failure, that's a learning process and that didn't work. So that means you need to go back and maybe try something else. Yeah. I I had a woman reach out to me the other day who said, well, my blood sugar always goes high right after I finish exercising. And I said, okay, you might want to talk to your healthcare team because I'm not a doctor, right? Um, about taking a small dose of insulin right after you finish your workout because your liver, when you when you exercise um, doing heavy weights or even just moderate weights, your blood sugar can spike when you're done because your body is going to go try to rebuild all that muscle and replenish the glycogen stores in your liver that you used for fuel during your workout. And so it is normal for your blood sugar to rise after your workout. And she said, well, no, but then I'll go, then I always go low later, uh, you know, after dinner and said, well, then you might want to talk to your healthcare team about taking a little more insulin with your meals 
And she argued with me back and forth a bit. And then she's like, oh, I think I get it. You're saying I need a little more insulin after exercising. Uh, or yeah, yeah, a little more insulin after exercising, but a little less insulin um, with dinner, right? So it's tweaking. You, you adjust here it means you might need a different adjustment here. And we just need to get the science first. And, and once you understand like, oh, it's normal that my blood sugar is spiking after a weightlifting workout. It's my body actually doing all the things it's supposed to do, except for the producing insulin part. That is so true. And even now what I find with, you know, a lot of people are very curious about CGMs that don't have diabetes and they're using them. Mm. And my husband actually does not have diabetes, but at one point in time, went to a doctor for a checkup, had some elevated blood sugar. And he said, oh, you might be pre-diabetic. And I'm like, you don't sleep enough. That's probably, you know, the issue, but (laughs) That that was my armchair expert diagnosis, but I said put a put on a, a a CGM and let's see what happens. And two days later it was the weekend, and he did a weight workout, and he's like, "Oh my gosh, my blood sugar went up." I'm like, "Yeah, that's usually I think how it's supposed to work." Um, so even people that don't have diabetes that are wearing them, I think they need to read your book just to understand how the body reacts and. And, and you know what he things. could also do? He could also go get his autoantibodies screened, get screened mm. for antibodies. Because if your children have type one, he could, I mean, I'm not wishing this upon him, but yeah. he could have really latent adult onset of type one that has not shown itself yet. And I never thought of that. I had mine screened once when we were at the Friends for Life conference in Florida. Okay. And I was like, yeah, I'm all about it. Like, Yeah, I would get him screened. Because it could be his genes that fueled children's type one, and he just hasn't fully developed it yet. I mean, I hear those stories of yeah. people, you know, they're di- they're diagnosed a couple years or decades after their children. That is so fa- that that is fascinating. I never thought of that because I just assumed that because he's working a lot, traveling, that his sleep is not not helping, but. But then also, um, I mean, for anybody listening, a lot of people say, well, what's the point of getting screened? He'll know the symptoms if he has them. There are so many therapies right now in trials um, and some even getting FDA approved for early onset beta cell preservation. Mm -hmm. So they end up on insulin. Wow. That's amazing. This is a really booming time of trials and yes. a lot of different it, things you know way better than I do them but... if you get screened right you can only yeah. have screen your children too so I highly recommend if you live in the U.S. and you're listening to this to visit um, t1detect.org it's JDRF screening and I would just look for screening options of autoantibodies those are the signs that you're developing type one years potentially before you have symptoms wow amazing and if you have the screening once, is there any chance that your genes would change and reprogram or do it or once and that's not it, that your done? genes are changing? Um, they the general theory that the researchers have, conf- you know, that agreed on is that um, most people who develop type one have autoantibodies before the age of five, even if you don't actually have the full onset until teens or 20s. That doesn't apply to everybody. I've screened my children three times each. Oh, yeah. um, It's such a simple process with the the Enable Biosciences 
finger stick, uh, which is a little harder to get now, but it costs about $90. Um, or you can have your doctor request screening and take your kids to a blood lab. My kids have done that too. Why do I, why have I screened them three times? Because I don't want to miss an opportunity to get them on something like T-Zield, which is FDA approved. Mm. One of my children did have a positive um, result, but she had also just had major surgery on her kidneys and her bladder. Um, And so then I wanted to test again after to see that that positive autoantibody cleared up and it did. Mm. So amazing. That's amazing. (laughs) We'll put a link. And we'll put a link yeah. in the show notes for people that are listening in US that have access to that if they, yes. they want to pursue it further. So digress a bit. And one thing and that what we were talking about before leading to the next thing that I noted, I like that you separated and defined anaerobic versus aerobic activity because I think a lot of people get confused when they start exercising. They and let me back it up a bit. We're assuming right now that not everyone even knows the difference and what that means. So could you explain the difference between aerobic and anaerobic? Yeah. And it's actually critical um, to understand this when exercising with type one, because it can completely change the impact on your blood sugar. And we used to, or we are probably still told by our doctors when you exercise, just eat 15 grams of carbs and Uh, that will prevent you going low. And then people end up at 300 because they didn't actually need carbs if their workout was uh, anaerobic instead of aerobic. So aerobic is cardio. It's when you're doing something um, and that you're kind of maintaining that intensity for a prolonged period of time. So really beyond like three minutes um, can start that impact of cardio. And when you're doing cardio, your heart rate is elevated for a prolonged period of time. So let's say my heart rate's at 130 during my my power walk. My body is using glucose primarily for fuel during cardio aerobic activity. Anaerobic is shorter bursts of intensity. And so because your heart rate is higher and your body is working harder, but it's at a it's at an intensity you can't sustain for 30 minutes straight or even 15. It's usually like two and a half minutes or less, right? So intervals, um, even spinning, which is cardio technically, but in a spinning workout, you're going to do these bursts of intensity that you can only maintain for 30 seconds or a minute. And that triggers this different physiological process in which you're actually turning lactic acid into glucose and you are, um, releasing stored glycogen from your muscles for fuel because your body can't get oxygen to glucose cells in your bloodstream quickly enough to use glucose for fuel. So it has to come up with this other way of producing and getting fuel. And so that can spike your blood sugar if you happen to not produce insulin along with the process. And so understanding that is critical Uh, Because you can also use it to your advantage. If I know that I still have a little bit of insulin on board as I arrive at the gym, and maybe I wanted to start my workout by running a mile on the treadmill, I can say, you know what, I know that I'm a little bit at a risk of going low here. So first, I'm going to do my weights. And then by the time I'm done doing my weights, that insulin I still had on board will have diminished. And then I can do my cardio. And that will help cancel out some of that spike from the weights. And so you can use that knowledge to your advantage as you plan your workout. That is very clever, really like very smart. 
instead of treating it with the food or, you know, if you're, especially you're training for something and you don't need or want the extra calories, for example. Yeah. Right. Being flexible, but knowledge is power. And I'm going to take insulin now. That black plum is definitely hitting my blood sugar. Oh, taking a hit of inhaled insulin, which is not available in Dubai at this time. But I know that it's in the pipeline because I've heard um, mankind talking about it. They are getting it. um, It's it's on its way. That's amazing. Yeah, we eventually get things. Sometimes it's a year, two years later, but it does it does get here. Um, I mean, we're still we're usually on average like one generation or so or a generation and a half behind on devices and things like that. But I mean, at the same time, I I look at it like I feel like we can't complain because we still have access to things that are helpful and useful and it gets there. Everything has a process. So that's good. Plus, I feel like by the time it comes when we, you know, read things that you're writing and other people are talking about or what they're doing, then I feel like we know so much about it already that it makes it a lot easier to to adapt and and adopt So for aerobic and anaerobic, is that the a hundred percent of the time everyone's blood sugar will behave in that way? Well, there's other variables at play, right? So there's also insulin on board. If you have too much insulin on board during an anaerobic workout, you are you still have the risk of going low because you're still doing physical activity that is going to increase the uptake of glucose because of all that insulin on board. So you still have to consider other variables. It is not cut and dry that I'm safe from a low because I'm lifting weights or I'm doing CrossFit and this is an anaerobic workout. You still need to think about what else is going on. Mm-hmm. That's true. And if you're doing it in the heat, like in Dubai, my right. son plays tennis and he has a very anaerobic response to tennis because mm. I guess the you know way that they're training and back yeah. and forth running okay. spurts, drills. Yeah. And as it gets hotter and cl- we're not playing tennis now because it's, it's too hot really. Although there's probably a few people doing it early morning and, and late, late. Yeah. Um, but the heat, even if you're cautious about it, it can still really drive it down. Like, and in the reverse, if you get really dehydrated during cardio, your blood sugar can spike because yeah. the glucose becomes more concentrated. I run, um, here's a kind of a, cardio and my blood sugar went up at the same time, variable for you to consider. So I walk my dog every morning, two miles. And then depending on my kid drop off schedule and I pretty much right after go and run two to three miles and I'm fasted. So then I run fasted for, uh, two to three miles. And technically because I'm fasted and I have my background insulin, um, and I take metformin to suppress Dawn phenomenon. So I'm not taking insulin for Dawn phenomenon, blood sugar spike. And then I know though, that if I don't eat breakfast by eight o'clock, my blood sugar starts to rise because my liver is saying, oh, you still haven't eaten. I'm going to give you some fuel. Here's some glucose. Good luck. Right. And I know that if I start my jog at 745, there's a good chance that even though I started that jog at, with a blood sugar of 94, like I did today, 
that by the time I get back, I could be over 150 because I've hit that window of when my liver starts releasing glucose because I have not eaten breakfast. Mm. So I could get pissed off. Of, what happened? I did cardio. I shouldn't go up. Or I could think about, well, there's science happening here that I have yet to understand if, if you didn't know that your liver is releasing glucose. And I just know that's probably going to happen. I'm not going to take, especially if it's a three mile run, I'm not going to take a bolus of insulin anticipating that it'll happen because it could ruin my run if I get it, you know, if it just doesn't happen that day, which it sometimes happens, right? Like mm. that just if I did a lot of exercise the day before, I might be more sensitive the next morning and that little 8 a.m. spike doesn't happen. So I wait for the proof that it's happening because I don't want to go low on my three-mile run, right? Um, As soon as I got back, I checked my blood sugar. I was 160. I was not surprised. I took my bolus of insulin and I didn't go, you know, much higher than that. So it's not perfect, right? I don't want to be 160 after a run, but that was the best way to manage that variable because I was. Yeah, that's amazing. And I, I'm sure a lot of people are curious. They always ask this question, what to use to treat a low. So when you go out for a run, what are you taking with you in case you do go low? I always have my fanny pack thing. That's got my phone and I have some right now I have sugar packets in there, like the ones you get at the gas station for your coffee. Um, and I literally grabbed them from a gas station last time I was somewhere that I needed to, I didn't have, I thought I had glucose in my fanny pack and I didn't, I was like, oh shoot. So I snuck into a gas station, got some. Um, and then I think I have like a pa- a little Halloween sized pack of Sour Patch Kids. So whatever I can fit in there that is compact and, you know, can treat multiple lows. There's four grams of sugar in one of those sugar packets Um, But I rarely go low during exercise because I know what my risk of going low is Mm -hmm. based on my insulin on board and the timing of my workout. So it's just knowledge, right? And it's knowledge anybody can learn. Yeah. Yeah. I can't, I don't want my son to grow up too fast. I mean, he's a teenager, but I'm thinking sometimes I actually think it'll be really cool when he's an adult and he's done growing because then he can better predict what his blood sugar is going to do if they're having a growth spurt or hormones or something. It it can sometimes not be as I mean, consistent. I guess. Well, but I would say in adulthood, there's so many variables that can change that too, of just like, if you just eat more heavy food one day, the next day you're just more insulin resistant or menstrual That's cycle. True. Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, before my menstrual cycle, I'm very resistant. And then there's like a couple of days into it where I'm extremely sensitive to insulin. Mm. And I always like, wow, I've been cured. And like, oh, no, wait, it's just day four of your menstrual cycle and it will go back to normal. And then, you know, day six, I'm like, oh, I'm so stubborn. What's going on? I'm like, oh, right. right. It's day six, of my menstrual cycle. Just, oh, so interesting. Just- yeah, I guess. It, it, well, this is just it. It's never ending when I think. Right. And you need to learn, I mean, thriving with type one, I believe is learning how to be flexible and also have that mindset of what's happening. Not I suck at this just because the blood sugars aren't perfect, right? Of asking, there's something going on here that I'm not aware of or can't anticipate and predict um, and can only respond to afterwards and just not beating yourself up for it and Mm. taking the heavy emotion out of it. 
Yeah, I think that that like we discussed, like you said, mindset is is everything. I'm looking down because I'm looking at the Kindle um, to find the the chapter where you talk about the food and eating, and you talk about pizza, mm. <laughs> and you don't want to, you know, necessarily maybe eat that before. And you touched a little bit on that, but any other uh, advice on on food and eating definitely. and ex- and around exercise specifically yeah. Yeah. yeah so if i want to have the most prediction of how my run is going to impact my blood sugar the the worst thing i could do is eat something that is very hard to predict like pizza right and that is going to require uh, funky insulin dosing because it's so slow di- digesting i need some up front and some later So I save those more indulgent treats for the end of the day. And I get my exercise done before them because also it doesn't feel good to go for a jog with pizza in your belly. Maybe that's fun for some people, but not me. Um, So the more consistent you can be, especially if you are really new to learning how to juggle your blood sugar around exercise, creating experiments where you're eating the same thing. before or after. And you don't have to do this for the rest of your life. You don't have to eat that bowl of oatmeal and blueberries every day for the rest of your life, but for a week, just to see so that you have one controlled variable there, right? And then and then the workout being the consistent and the insulin dosing, and then you can adjust because you have controlled variables so you can see what's going on. Personally, I like to exercise before I eat anything. Because, um, and I, there's a whole chapter in the book about this of eating, uh, exercising in a fasted state, because mm-hmm. that eliminates a huge variable, which is bolus insulin and food, right? And so, not everybody wants to do that. And I, I do it at several different times a day. I do it first thing in the morning, before breakfast. But I also create a fasted environment whenever possible. For my afternoon dog walk, I walk my dog about two and a half miles in the middle of the day, and I don't want to have just eaten lunch right before that dog walk. So I try to time it when I have minimal insulin on board from a meal. And then if I don't get to do my jog in the morning because the kids schedule juggling, I'm going to probably end up doing my jog somewhere between 4 and 7 p.m. And I'm going to do the same thing of trying to make sure that I don't have uh, a meal bolus on board. So that means if I was taking an injection of insulin, like Novolog, Humalog, that I would need at least three hours between the meal bolus and the exercise to have minimal insulin on board for that exercise. Because I use mostly a Frezza for my meals, I have more flexibility. The smaller a Frezza dose has the biggest impact for about an hour. The bigger a Frezza dose is more like two hours that I would be conscious of that insulin on board window. Um, so it's all about remembering how long has it been since I took a large dose of insulin for a meal. Mm. And then of course, if you want to eat right before, you need to learn how to reduce your bolus. And that's where being consistent in what you eat and not eating something um, as troublesome um, or complicated as pizza comes in handy because yeah. it's more things to work around. Yeah, too heavy anyway, like something... I w- I w- I'm assuming something like nice, easy, that's like one ingredient, like a banana, 
and some nuts or I mean, something or, or whatever. Or, yeah, yeah. I mean, it could be a sandwich. It could be a salad. It's just be consistent and study that. Use that one meal until you get the hang of it and you start to understand like, oh, my body needs a 50% reduction in my meal bowl is if I eat right before going for a three-mile jog, right? Or mm-hmm. if right before a two-mile walk or right before CrossFit. And so it's it's an experiment. Take notes and be consistent until you get some firm data and then you can be more flexible. You can try a different meal and a different, you know, and then apply that same uh, theory of the reduced meal bolus. Some people at 75% before a CrossFit workout. Some people it might be a 50% reduction before that workout, right? Amazing. And I also like your suggestions for post-workout food as well. I think it's really helpful, not just for people with diabetes, but really any anybody, I think it's it's very healthy, practical protein shake and fruit, protein shake and oats, banana and peanut butter and milk. You don't have a nut allergy, of course, or apple and cheese, apples, veggies, and hummus. I mean, real food. Yeah. that Real real food. Yeah. Not, not any. And what I see here, a lot of people are, you know, curious, oh, sport drinks. Can you talk, actually, can we talk a little bit about sport drinks? Mm. because they're everywhere they're marketed to teens and kids and are they really Gatorade Powerade yeah yeah those kind of things yeah yeah are they helpful if you are exercising with diabetes for most workouts water is plenty right if you are exercising more than an hour then a sports drink with a little bit of glucose and electrolytes is going to be helpful if you're, you know, because you're going beyond that hour. And the diet ones have the electrolytes and then they have mostly aspartame and sucralose. I personally avoid those. They have been banned and studied to heck and depends on who's funding the study on what the results say on their safety. (laughs) But um, the World Health Organization just recently deemed them as a cancerous potential. So something to consider. I think you'd be better off drinking water personally than drinking aspartame and sucralose. But yeah, once you step into that training for longer things that are beyond that hour workout, those could serve you. Caffeine is is something to really consider because I meet people who say, oh, I'm so insulin resistant. Like, well, how much caffeine do you drink all day? Caffeine can tell your, and it's a little caffeine might not do this. Everybody's a little different on their sensitivity to caffeine. Personally, I can drink one cup of coffee a day or get one serving caffeine a day. And if I have any more than that, my liver just starts dumping glucose because caffeine, mm. part of how it gives you energy is telling your liver to release stored sugar. And once I've overdone that coffee consumption, it takes hours for that to calm down. And I cannot get it to budge with rapid acting insulin. And so I personally stick to one cup of coffee and I just doesn't matter if I'm feeling groggy in the afternoon, go for a walk. That will wake you up far better than another cup of caffeine. And that extra insulin that you might be needing because you are a chronic caffeine consumer is going to play a role in storing more glucose for fat Um, It's going to play a role in how poorly you sleep, you know, and just how you feel. And 
you think you need it, but probably what you need is just get up and go for a walk and let your brain, um, you know, stop abusing your brain with caffeine. I love that you highlighted that because one, there's some newer sport drinks that they not only have the sugar, but the caffeine. And like you said, sport drinks were initially kind of for marathon runners or ultra athletes and not just for them. You don't need sports drink before going to a CrossFit workout. Just show up and like be here. Or after, I don't think so. Yeah. And then the the caffeine as well, not necessarily just in the sport drink, but here in this part of the world. Well, I mean, you were in Abu Dhabi, maybe you saw, but there's a lot of coffee, a, a lot of coffee places and a lot of really good coffee. So, and people drink a lot of coffee throughout the day, all day. Um, so yeah. that's really good advice to and, do that and, and a reason America, to get back too. on it. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah. Coffee, coffee, coffee all day long. And mm. if you have type one, I think um take a look at how much caffeine you're drinking because it could be really driving a lot of insulin resistance. Higher you if you cut your caffeine, you might I would not be surprised if your basal insulin needs go down dramatically eventually mm-hmm. because you're constantly all day telling your liver to release more glucose and you're constantly presenting the stimulant. That is fascinating. My son had an iced coffee yesterday and he doesn't typically drink coffee, but we were out and I usually don't drink coffee afternoon. And I was like, oh, okay, we'll get, you know, whatever. And it was a small one, but his blood sugar was high last night. And so I wonder mm-hmm. if that contributed to it. I wouldn't have thought of that. If I were to drink that in the middle of the afternoon, I would be in the high 200s for hours. And it even for me applies to the amount in decaf. So there's something in decaffeinated coffee. I can't even do that. I'll be high for hours. There's a little bit of caffeine in decaf. I mean, it's yeah. it's a small percent, but but it's right. still there. It's yeah. still there. And so I want to move on now to another chapter that you talk about, which I think a lot of people are curious about weight loss with type one diabetes and exercise. Can you shed a little light on that? Sure. I mean, we just um, talked about one thing that could contribute to successful weight loss, which is look at your caffeine consumption, right? Um, The trickiest thing for people when they set out trying to lose weight is you are doing all these things that reduce your insulin needs. So if you don't make those adjustments in your basal and bolus insulin needs, you're going to be going low all the time. Then you're going to be eating all the time and you're going to feel like giving up because this feels futile, right? And it would be futile if you don't make the adjustments. And those adjustments can come very quickly. If you suddenly start walking every day, the impact, not just around the hours you walked, but your overall basal insulin needs are going to go down nearly immediately. Uh, I noticed just from missing one day of doing 30 minutes of intense cardio, being more insulin resistant the rest of that day, right? So if you turn that in reverse, you need to make adjustments quickly. And then once you lose even just three or four pounds, that five pound mark is a big one. You'll need another reduction in your basal insulin. So Frequent lows are a sign that you're getting too much insulin. And there are people who have high A1Cs who are having frequent lows. It doesn't mean that 
you, you know, we get, it's very confusing sometimes when you're having frequent lows, but you also have a high A1C and you're frustrated with high blood sugars. Frequent lows can come from not having enough basal insulin on board and you're constantly correcting highs and therefore then you're also going low all the time. But for a lot of people, especially when you're trying to lose weight, you have too much basal insulin on board. You're going low all the time. I was just in a chat with a bunch of women who are trying to talk about weight loss and exercise in type one. All of them really were saying, well, every time I start exercising, I go low and say, you have too much insulin on board. You have too much. I had to say it 18 times before anybody Mm -hmm. was like, oh, you're right. Right. So we should not be going low every day as type one. And was that causing them to be afraid to exercise then? Right. And then it was causing them to have difficulty managing their weight because they had their, they believed that their basils ought to be up here Mm. and that exercise was too complicated. When in fact, once you start just making exercise a regular part of your life, you bring your basils down and that's your new default. And if you have a day or two where you don't get to do your exercise, then you bring up temporarily, but create that new default, get your, to lose weight with that, with type one, Truly, the first step is to get your basal insulin doses down as low as possible so that you don't go low during ordinary activity, right? They were saying, I can't even garden without plummeting. Like, you have too much insulin on board. Wow. Yeah. So that's frustrating. Yes. Um, And then consistency. So I'll tell you, I've actually gained five pounds this summer because I have broken from all my personal guidelines that help me normally manage my weight. I'm drinking alcohol nearly feels like nearly every day of the week because it's summer in Vermont and people coming over and just always feels like a Friday. And it's not a lot of alcohol. doesn't matter if it's one glass or two or three. It's still alcohol every day and alcohol helps contribute to belly fat, right? Um, I'm still exercising a ton, but I'm not eating my normal, like I usually eat just really light whole food meals during the day. And I'm just, I feel like I'm not in any consistency about what I'm eating during the day. And I've been traveling a lot and eating more indulgent meals. And, you know, like I've just lost my consistency around very simple things. And that alcohol is a big one, I think. Um, but it ha- it has a lot of calories too. I mean, I must admit, calories. as a as a fellow, yes. I don't know, it's wine, but I I like wine, and yeah, it's right calories. I mean, that's yeah. an extra three hundred calories if you have three more glasses of wine mm-hmm. on a Monday. When and, and then add that up over the week, that's I, potentially I'm drinking an extra twelve hundred calories a week just in alcohol because I'm no longer limiting it to Fridays and Saturdays. Right? It's like. Yeah. Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, it's like every day is, you know, um, so I can get mad that I've gained five pounds or I can just be honest with myself that I haven't stuck to my personal guidelines that I know help me stay leaner. Right. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so get real about your habits and stop eating croissants for breakfast. That's not real food. That's a dessert. <laughs> and, you know, if you get real, just be honest with yourself about what you're doing and what you're eating. and. Definitely, I don't believe in lifelong food tracking, but if you've never tracked what you ate for an extensive period of time, and I mean, even just a month, do it and write down the things that aren't perfect. Um, Be honest. So yeah, it's, yeah, it it keeps you honest. And then 
you see where the extra calories might be sneaking in. Like I hate tracking stuff, but there was a time where I'm like, yeah, I need to like get it together. Yeah. And I think really my weight gain was, I was just eating nuts. Like I was a squirrel or chipmunk or something. So much fat. I'm like, oh yeah, nuts are healthy, but too much is not really great. And when you start writing it down. Yes. And even if you don't want to track all the calories right away, just writing down the food and the time of day you ate is a great way to catch yourself and like, am I really hungry right now? Do I really need to eat this? And then looking at the end of the day, how much of this is real food? Did I eat yeah. vegetables all day? Right. Yeah. So choosing, making, you know, carrots and hummus and cucumbers, whatever, you know, I don't know what the main raw foods are, that, the raw veggies that you have the most access to there, but yeah. Uh, Making Stuff like that, yeah. whole foods more of your default before you grab the sandwich and the fried chicken and the hamburger. And yeah, yeah, whole plant based foods are always best, especially for snacking. And I love what you said. It really it validates a discussion I was having actually with a coaching client. We were talking about food and she had wanted to lose some weight. And she's like, I will not track food. I really hate it. I said, I feel you. I hate it too. I said, yeah. but. If you can, without having to weigh it, calorie count it, if if you're not, if you're not type one and you're not learning your way around carb counts and having to, you know, calculate insulin and things like that, you still may need to weigh it, but without being too rigid, like you said, write it down just to be aware and it'll, it'll still add value to helping you understand how, you know, things are really working or yeah. not working, I think. And again, you know, we talked about fake sugars. I would look at how much diet soda you're drinking uh, because it's not, that's not water. It's not nothing. Just because it doesn't have any carbs in it doesn't mean it's nothing. Right. And, and then there's studies that say that diet sodas, like your body is thinking it's something else and then behaving differently when you're yes. consuming diet soda. Yeah. I mean, in type one, that's hard to prove because we know it doesn't raise our blood sugar, but I do know some non-diabetics who have quit diet soda. That's the only change they made. And this woman lost 40 pounds. Oh my goodness. So, yeah. Uh, it's, you know, it's just worth looking at because that is not, it's not a good thing. What's it's in a process. It's processed. It's, it's not weird. It's not good fake stuff. Right. Yeah. So take a look at it. I think diet soda should be a a luxury item treat that is here and there. It's it's got a higher tax here, but I don't think it's really stopped people. Right. So no. sodas so in general. It's I think in some places in Europe they did that. And then here they put kind of a luxury tax or some kind of tax yeah. on it to deter people from drinking it. But yeah. I don't think it's really stopped anybody. Cigarettes are very expensive. That hasn't stopped anyone from smoking them. Yeah, right. The same, yeah. very similar thing. Yeah. And so are we, we talked a little bit about weight loss. Are people starting to use people with type one, because we hear about Ozempic and all these other things that oh, people yeah. with type two or obese, or even people that don't need it, that are using yeah. it. Are people with type one using these new drugs for yeah, weight loss? I take Ozempic. I'm taking a tiny dose and I've been on it since like November, maybe. And I didn't take it for weight loss. And I did lose like five, six pounds at first because you just feel so full the first month you're taking it. But I took it because my insulin needs kept going up and there was no reason for it. This was last year. And 
And I also was having very dramatic dawn phenomenon. So metformin and Ozempic, and I'm on the teeniest dose of Ozempic you can take. And it's awesome because what it's actually doing for type ones, and this is a whole, we're about to open a whole. That's a whole nother podcast. Information, yes. Oh no. But, and you can Google this article, um, the six dysfunctional hormones of type one diabetes. Search that you'll find it at t1dexchange.org. Your body misproduces as a type one, a whole bunch of hormones, not just insulin. And so what medications like Ozempic do, GLP-1 agonists, they replace our lack, they help you compensate our lack of the hormones that regulate appetite. They regulate how much sugar your liver produces all day. So as type ones, part of why we struggle with our weight is because we overproduce sugar. We literally overproduce sugar all day long. So that means we need more insulin than we would normally be taking for our basal needs if we didn't have diabetes, which means we have more glucose being stored as fat. Mm. Um, and then many type ones feel this kind of constant sense of hunger and GLP ones, GLP one agonists replace and help you compensate the hormones that tell your brain you're full while you're eating. And we are lacking those hormones and we're lacking that whole system that does that properly for us. Um, So they serve a significant purpose there. And I really, I, I know there's a shortage, but I am in support of even non-diabetics who want to take these drugs. Obviously there's people who don't really need to lose weight who are taking them. And I don't think that's wise because when you go off them, you will regain the weight because your liver starts producing more sugar again. So don't start it if you see it as a temporary thing and you can't get it in an affordable way because you'll need to consider this as a a long-term medication just as insulin. Obviously insulin is do or die, um, but you can't just go on this for a little bit and get the benefits and then go off and then continue those benefits, right? Yeah, I have an interview I did. I think it's going to be uh, air after this one, a clinic here that's managing, it's a, it's a diabetes clinic, a very good one. And we talked only about these drugs because there is a shortage and, and how they're using it, what they're finding with their patients. And actually the owner of the clinic, he himself has used it. So he has personal experience with it as well. Um, being pre-diabetic, not, not diabetic, not type one, but yeah. it was very interesting. And, and yeah, I think it's a discussion to have for sure with your doctor, if you feel like you think you want to try it or take it, because like you said, when you've stopped taking it, people gain the weight back. They also found a lot of people were losing um, muscle mass when they're losing weight. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, I would, if you are obese and you're taking this and it dramatically, it causes dramatic rapid weight loss. Anytime you lose weight rapidly like that and you have a lot to lose, you're going to lose muscle. Mm-hmm. But um, if you are just a little bit overweight and using it for that, I would I would really encourage people to start on a really low dose and and go very gradually, even more gradually than your doctor is being told by the drug companies to increase your dose because you don't need to be on high doses to get the benefits if you're more patient (laughs) and you do need to apply lifestyle habits to get the benefits, you can eat your way through Ozempic if you want, right? Um, I'm on Ozempic and I've gained five pounds this summer. It's not magic. You need to do the work, but it is a tremendous support and 
even for someone who doesn't have diabetes, who struggles with overeating. Uh, and I have friends who've, who don't have diabetes, who've taken it and have struggled their whole life with their weight. And it's really helping them and it's giving them support. And I want them to have that support. I have friends with type one who, you know, as uh, diagnosed in their twenties, gained 40 pounds because of that hyper reaction the body has once it gets insulin again mm-hmm. and the liver overproducing glucose. And we're taking way more insulin as type ones than we would need if we didn't have type one, because we're using the subpar stuff that's manufactured, right? It's yeah. not good. It's not and it's not, I, I want the real deal. <laughs> right. And, um, and so she went on Ozempic and she lost 40 pounds over the course of a year. Wow. And she's not, binging on tacos and French fries all day to gain 40 pounds is just the diabetes diagnosis truly. And so it's, you know, I just, I, I think we're the headlines are making it really silly and there's a lot of bashing of only type twos should be taking it. But I think um, there's so much science that demonstrates why type ones need it. And, and we have another article titled GLP ones in type one diabetes, uh, at T1D exchange that can also demonstrate some research that's been done on it. It, it makes complete sense in type one, even if you're not looking to lose weight. I'll put it in the show notes. We'll link back to those articles. So if people want to find them, they'll be there. So we'll definitely share those. I want, I realize we're getting almost finished with our time. I just, I like the way that you ended the book um, where you, where you say, can I, can I read it? It's just sure, a, little, sure. a little bit. You say now get ready for my Tony Robbins, Oprah Winfrey pep talk because it's coming. <laughs> okay. Here it is. If you're fortunate to have the critical basics insulin tech healthcare, then you have two choices in this obnoxious disease. Option one is get mad, live in a state of constant frustration, blame yourself, blame the world, give up, do the bare minimum to keep yourself alive and wrap yourself up in a big cozy bubble of anger for years to come. Or option two, get mad, take a deep breath, take another deep breath, take notes, learn a little bit more and try again. (laughs) I thought that was really that that whole section is great. Thank you. I think you just remind people how to, you know, I don't want to minimalize the challenge, but just kind of take it in stride and take a deep breath. And and, and I, I mean, deep acknowledging that I understand this is really hard, you know, and, but you can do it with the right mindset. Yeah. Your last sentence is, I hope this book inspires you to wake up and do what you can to thrive. And I I think that it it probably will do that for a lot of people. Good. I hope so. (laughs) Thank you. So congratulations on a great book. Thank you again so much for joining me again. Really. It's always lovely to talk to you and um, write it. I mean, you don't have to write a book to come back, come back anytime, but if you write another book, then we'll talk about that one. Thank you. I'm planning to write a book about inhaled insulin. So we'll see. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. I'll need to read that one for sure. So I can start learning what to do, yeah. how, how to use this one. Thanks so much. Have a wonderful day. And I hope the, the blueberry crisp turned out well. Yeah, me too. I just really want to thank Ginger for joining me again on the podcast to have her back a second time was really so special 
she's such an inspiration. Um, and if you haven't come across her work before or read any of her articles, I will also, we'll have that in the links for the show notes. She's so knowledgeable about so many areas of diabetes um, through her personal experience, but also through all the research she does. So she's got a lot of quality books, a lot of quality articles. So please go check those out. And I loved the advice about mindset um, and really stepping back and taking a deep breath and then taking another deep breath. And that's something that I hope that my child can can live you know, with such, um, I want to call it almost grace and elegance with diabetes because it was really, really beautiful. And I'm sure it can be frustrating. I can't imagine because I'm not living with diabetes, but I know as a caretaker, I get really frustrated with it sometimes. So I'm also going to take that advice myself. Thank you so much for joining us and have a wonderful day.